Welcome back to Supreme Myths, and we have a humdinger today. I'm very excited about this. My two guests, Chris Sprigman, the Murray and Kathleen Bring Professor of Law at NYU, and Brian Fry, the Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky, are my guests. They've both been on Supreme Myths before, uh, this podcast before. They are both uh, academics of incredible talent with, with skills that far transcend the topic we're going to talk about today. However, they both have been writing about um, and thinking about plagiarism, which is all over the news. As everybody knows, the, um, the president of Harvard had to resign, at least partly because of plagiarism, or maybe for other reasons, maybe we'll get into that. Um, but this issue is, is sweeping the academies, it's sweeping public life, and I thought no better people to talk about it than my two friends, Chris and Brian. Thanks for being here, Guy. Thanks, Eric, for having us. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. So let, let's begin at a fairly high level of generality. Um, you're both copyright experts. I know almost nothing about copyright. I suspect the con law people listening to this podcast, although there are many non-con law people listening, are also novices when it comes to copyright. What are the differences between plagiarism and copyright that are relevant to a discussion of plagiarism? Uh, Brian, why don't we start with you and then Chris can add on. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, I think... Colloquially, we have a tendency to use plagiarism and copyright infringement as kind of synonyms. And in fact, even some famous judges like uh, Judge Learned Hand uh, occasionally use the two as synonyms. But but they're not really synonyms at all, although they're similar in a lot of ways. And there's a considerable amount of, of overlap between the two. So copyright is about limiting legally the uh, ability to make and use works of authorship in particular ways, canonically to make copies, but also to distribute or display or um, make uh, derivative versions of, of those copies. And it's intended to primarily to protect an economic right to so the economic interests of authors and realistically publishers in ensuring that they get to internalize the economic value of producing whatever works of authorship they're selling to, to the public. Plagiarism is totally different and has existed for a lot longer, actually. So, so in a nutshell, plagiarism is the obligation to attribute certain works of authorship or ideas contained within a particular work of authorship. And um, I've found instances of sort of proto-plagiarism accusations going back to ancient Greece. They've uh, existed in one or another different way in different societies over time ever since then. Um, but uh, plagiarism norms in a lot of ways, I think, go more to the interests of authors in ensuring that the works of authorship that they produced or the value that they've added to the discursive community is recognized in ways that authors uh, find uh, desirable and uh, arguably appropriate under the circumstances. So, so Chris, let's let's put this in, in a very concrete context. Um, I, I, anybody listening to this podcast probably knows that I wrote a book called Supreme Myths, where I came up with the loony and crazy idea that the Supreme Court is not a court and it's justice and not judges. Let's assume somebody next year writes a book with the same thesis, a very similar title, and actually um, make, creates a, uh, presents a lot of the same ideas I presented that's part A, part B, and there are actual paragraphs that are taken directly from my book, and he never mentions my book. The book is not mentioned in footnotes. The book is not mentioned anywhere. The book was published in 2012. What's the difference between the copyright, copyright way of looking at this and the plagiarism way of looking at that? Is that, is that a fair question? Did I set that, up, set that up okay? Yeah, that's a fair question. And that's exactly the example I was going to use, okay. so you preempted me. Okay. Uh, but let me just say that... Uh, 
copyright and plagiarism here overlap, but they're not coterminous, right? So let's try to pull them apart. So if someone uses your idea, so they take the idea that a court is not a court. The, and the, they, sorry, the court is not a court. <laughs> the court is not a court. Yeah. Yes. And they don't credit you, right? That is a plagiarism issue. That's a failure to credit the use of someone else's idea. So they're presenting that idea as their own. Let's just say, just to make this case easy, that they're aware of it. They're aware of your book. They're inspired by it, but they don't cite it. They don't acknowledge that the idea comes from you. That's plagiarism. Now, it might be also, as you said, that they copy bits and pieces of your text, right? And typically under the way the rules now work about plagiarism, and the, just to be clear, the rules about plagiarism are not law. They're kind of institutional rules. So they're the rules of a university or they're the rules of a publication, right? They're, they're, they're norms that we adhere to. Um, we often treat the reproduction of relatively small bits of text without putting them in quotes and acknowledging the source, we often also treat that as plagiarism. That is also, that reproduction of bits and pieces of text can also be the concern of copyright infringement. This can also count as copyright infringement. So that's the that that's the place where copyright and plagiarism overlap. I will add though, and you know, we might get into this later, that with respect to the reproduction of bits and pieces of text, copyright is often a bit more discerning than plagiarism is, in that copyright basically allows you to reproduce text if the text is basically just facts, right? Um, copyright allows you to reproduce text if there's no other way to say something, right? Also, copyright doesn't require you to attribute anything. Copyright isn't about attribution. Um, and that's kind of surprising. So, yeah, that, that confuses me a little bit, to be honest. Yeah. So in Europe, uh, I wouldn't be saying that. If we were having this conversation in France, I would say, well, copyright has an attribution requirement. In American copyright, there is no attribution requirement. Um, attribution is something we might negotiate for because we have a copyright in our work, but it's not something that the law gives us as an entitlement. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would I would add to that that de facto copyright is very, very, very frequently used in an attribution focused kind of way. But as Chris points out, it, it that's not actually a formal right, exclusive right of copyright owners, with the exception of a very, very small number of them in very limited circumstances. And at least in theory, copyright doesn't care about attribution. The, the, the example, the hypo I gave, it, uh, is that a copyright violation? Somebody writes a book with the same thesis um, and 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 lifts a few paragraphs, not a lot, but a few paragraphs directly, but the ideas indirectly throughout the book. Is that a copyright problem? So let me just say the ideas are not within the scope of copyright. So Section 102B of the Copyright Act says that the scope of copyright does not extend to ideas. So the, with respect to the ideas, the answer is no. Okay. With respect to your expression, it depends. It really depends on what's taken. So for example, if the pieces taken are just you saying in 1872, the Supreme Court did this, and the, 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 the way in which you explain that is basically just retailing a fact. And the, the, the book that is copying your idea also retails that fact doesn't retail it exactly the way you do it, but basically just says the same fact, that, that is not going to be the basis for a copyright infringement allegation, okay. or at least one that works. Okay. Okay. So so let's leave. Okay. So, and just for the non-lawyers listening, I think um, you can't sue for plagiarism, but you can sue for copyright infringement. And copyrights, 
right, Chris? Are you, Chris gave me a, a weird look there. That, that's right. Okay. And copyright lasts how long? Like 90 years or so? How long does copyright last? Well, yeah, go ahead, Brian. <laughs> it's generally, generally speaking, it's the life of the longest live author of the work in question, plus an additional 70 years. However, for works that have a corporate author instead of a human author, there's a fixed copyright term, typically 95 years, but it, it can be longer for certain limited categories. Is that, is that why all of a sudden I saw that um, Mickey Mouse is now available for anybody's use pretty much? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Mickey, right. Mouse, Mickey Mouse just fell outside the extended copyright term under the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act of Sonny Bono. Okay. Yeah, let's, and, let me let me be careful just so people yeah. aren't misled. Yeah. yeah. One version of Mickey Mouse fell out of copyright. It's the version of Mickey Mouse that is found in Steamboat Willie, which right. is the first right. Mickey yeah. Mouse film. Yeah. Right. Other versions of Mickey Mouse, the, the ones <laughs> that we're more familiar with today, the kind of modern Mickey Mouse, will be in copyright a while longer. I have a hundred Mickey Mouse so, jokes. Although, although I, 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 I gotta say, I still push back against that because, like, yeah. I want, I want them to show me the elements of those later versions that are independently copyrighted. Okay, okay, that, that's a fair I'm question, not... but I don't want to, I don't want to get. That's too Mickey Mouse for this podcast. We're not gonna do that. Um, okay, um, let's leave copyright behind now. It may come back up, but, but, but the main point I want to make to the audience is you can't sue for plagiarism. You can't sue for copyright under the right conditions, and, and, and. Um, you cannot copyright ideas is the key point I want to make because we're going to come right. back to that idea in a few minutes. Let me make sure I have this correctly before we even begin. Brian, you are an all-out – you're a critic of plagiarism the way I'm a critic of the Supreme Court. Um, we just want it gone. We just want the idea gone. And, and I don't want yes. the Supreme Court totally gone, but I want it 99% gone. So, and, and, and Chris, you're critical of our current oh. plagiarism practices and standards, but you think there's a place for this concept we just have to – do better at it. Is that a fair beginning? Is yeah. That... So, so if Brian is a Bolshevik on this issue, I'm a Menshevik. Yes. And okay. it's a, a obscure historical reference, but I think it captures the yeah. Although us and... in, in this political world, citing communists, I don't know if that's a great idea, especially for the three of us currently sitting in this fair podcast. Fair but okay, we'll move on. Okay. So I guess my first question is a dumb one, but is there a definition of plagiarism anywhere that we can all say, well, that's a pretty good definition and we can move on? Because my my... My intuition is no, but you guys are the experts. So that's Chris, let's start with you this time. Is there a definition of, of plagiarism that works? So there's a definition of plagiarism that works in the sense that institutions have definitions of plagiarism and they <laughs> work in the sense that students get disciplined and sometimes faculty too. So just on a practical level, the answer is yes. Um, the definitions of plagiarism differ institution to institution. Sometimes they're not articulated in full. My own institution has a definition of plagiarism, which starts out kind of lofty. It basically says, you know, plagiarism is about taking ideas without attribution. Um, but then it gets then it gets down into cases. It gets down into nitty gritty, and things get a little weird. So it basically says at some point, you know, any uncredited taking of more than a trivial number of words is is plagiarism. And wow. Uh, that seems contestable. We can, we can talk about that, but that seems like a bit of a reach. Yeah. Um, these policies tend to be, I think I would say pretty draconian on paper. Um, they tend to really take a very powerful moral tone about the wrongfulness of copying across the board, not just, you know, the core, but there's a, there's a big periphery. Um, so that, that, that's, if you look at your typical plagiarism policy, that's where you're going to find um, Brian, uh, hold on, Brian, let me, let me be specific about this. So way back in 1982, we had a plagiarism incident at, at Vanderbilt Law School that ended up dramatically. But what I want to say about it is Vanderbilt's policy in 1982 
had an intent standard. You had to intend to plagiarize. That got right. changed after the incident to a kind of strict liability. And I know, I know you don't want any standards, Brian, but just empirically, do most plagiarist definitions at, at, at institutions and academic institutions, others have an intent standard? Well, the, my wife is a criminal lawyer. Yeah. So I would, I would have to say in, in a criminal law intent standpoint, there is an intent requirement insofar as you have to intend to produce a work of authorship. Do you have to intend to plagiarize? I think no. Right. So it'd be strict liability in that sense, insofar as whatever copying or whatever production of a text that you do, if it satisfies the criteria of your institution's plagiarism rules, the institution can, and depending on the context, in some cases will determine that a plagiarism has occurred. What they do about that subsequently is another question entirely. Okay. Right. Um, the cynic in me would say that the more highly ranked you are within the university, the less <laughs> likely you are to suffer any meaningful consequences for your... Uh, well, except the president of Harvard situation seems to... But we'll get back to that in a second. Yeah. Um, Brian, I'll get back to you in one second. Chris, I'd like you to... Art you've written... Chris has written articulately about the two goals ostensibly behind plagiarism. Chris, I'd like you to articulate right. those goals, and then I'd like Brian to just deconstruct them and destroy them, and then I'll give you a chance to respond, okay? So the two goals of plagiarism are what? Uh, Anti-plagiarism, I guess. Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago, I wrote a piece in New York Magazine in yeah. part because uh, of the allegations against Claudine Gay, and then while I was reading it, allegations came up against Neri Oxman, who is the Israeli-American academic formerly of MIT, who is married to Bill Ackman. Bill Ackman is the billionaire hedge fund impresario <laughs> who is one of the people who was most aggressive in going after Claudine Gay, first for her testimony in Congress on campus anti-Semitism, then for allegations of plagiarism. So it had this kind of, you know, uh, Greek tragedy quality <laughs> to it where, you know, hubris comes home to roost relatively quickly yes. on someone's spouse. Um, and that interested me. Uh, this is a subject I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, the two reasons we typically do this now, you know, I, I want to say if plagiarism regulation quickly overruns these reasons, but the two reasons we typically identify are that when a writer stands on the shoulders of some other writer, we, we should credit that there should not be uncredited shoulder standing, right? That's an unfair advantage we're taking of somebody else's work. The second thing, which is related, is the reader has an interest in not being defrauded. So if if I take your idea about the court not being a court and I present it as my own, the idea will be readers will credit me with something that's actually quite important and insightful where, you know, they should credit you. They have a they have an interest in knowing where these ideas come from. And those are the two things we usually point to. Um, my own feeling is those things are valid, we should care about them. I'm not sure we should, you know, take care of those concerns in precisely the way that they do, but that's where we start. Okay. Brian, Brian, I'm going to ask you about both of those rationales. Before I do, I'm sorry, moderator privilege, personal story for one second. Um, I hope you guys will forgive this. Um, it was somewhere, I don't remember the year, Chris, but it was somewhere in 15 or 16. I don't remember. And my book was published in 2012. And, um, I was despondent. I was despondent that these ideas hadn't taken hold. I was despondent how terrible the court was. I saw it getting worse. Um, and I was really thinking of leaving constitutional law. I really was to some significant degree. And doing something, I, federal courts is my other specialty, so I could be very happy writing about standing and coherence for the rest of my life. 
I didn't know Chris. We'd never met. And Chris called me um, on the phone. Oh, actually, he wrote me an email and said, can we talk sometime? And I said, sure. I don't know who you are, but sure. Uh, I mean, I, I knew of Chris, but I didn't know him personally. And um, Chris told me in that phone call that he really liked my work, that he was going to write some stuff about the Supreme Court that was similar and that he wanted to know this was coming. And it was it, it, it reinvigorated my career, Chris. I cannot tell you how much. <laughs> and you can ask my wife. I was in a really low place. And the fact that someone as smart as you, as nationally known as you are, took the time to do that meant a lot to me uh, and kept me going. Now it's seven years later. And now my book, I mean, that old book, of course, is getting a lot of currency for the wrong reasons. Um, but um, so I just want to thank Chris for that because it was a it was a momentous phone call in my career. And I appreciate it. Well, I, a lot. I didn't know that. I'm very happy to hear it. And, you know, you've been a great friend to me as well. I well, appreciate it a lot. Just, OK, back back to business, Brian. Yeah. So I think these two rationales that Chris articulates are important. We authors should get the attribution that they des that they deserve, I think, um, you know, and, and and I also think readers shouldn't be defrauded. And I'll add a third one when it comes to students. I'd like you to address also. Um, if a student if once if student A plagiarizes and student B doesn't, let's say in a law review competition, that's not fair. I mean, that's, you know, student A has an academic advantage and, and we got to figure that one out too. So go ahead. I'm, you now have the floor for a few minutes. I know Chris will be patient because he's a patient guy. And tell us why all of Chris's reasons for, for having some plagiarism standards you don't agree with and why you would take the, and, and I said to you once before on this podcast, um, I don't know, I don't think I agree with you about ending all plagiarism rules, but your ideas are original and not stupid. And that's, and, and, and actually they're original and smart, but original and not stupid is impressive. Original and smart is really impressive. So even if we disagree, I think these are original and smart ideas. So go ahead. Oh, thank, thank you, Eric. So yeah. I would return to the question you initially asked yeah. Chris, which is, is there a definition of plagiarism? And I would say, no, there isn't a definition of plagiarism. There are many definitions, not just among institutions today, but historically and at different points in time among different communities. And I think that's a really important observation because it gets to the key point I want to make about plagiarism norms, which is that they are contextual to the literary economy that they're designed to moderate and control. Why is that? Because the fundamental purpose of plagiarism norms is, and I'm going to emphasize here, right, that plagiarism is the copying without attribution of somebody else's ideas or expressions. Well, what does that mean? Somebody else's. It means that plagiarism norms are saying these ideas or expressions belong to someone. And I think that tells us really something fundamental and critically important about plagiarism norms, which is plagiarism norms are intended to and do in fact create a certain kind of literary property, authorial property in attribution. That's what they designed to create. That, that's what they were designed to create 2000 plus years ago. And that's what they consider continue to do today. And that's really important to authors because attribution, because clout, because fame is important to authors. So I recognize like this is a motivating incentive for some, if not all authors to engage in literary. And, and that's the first rationale we talked about. That's Chris's first rationale. Okay. Right. However, my point is. If we think about plagiarism norms as just another property right that we design the same way we design other property rights in order to accomplish social goals, right? I think that's incredibly corrosive to the entire enterprise of plagiarism norms because we have spent 2000 plus years moralizing the prohibition on plagiarism so much so that we've forgotten that plagiarism is about ownership of attribution 
and convinced ourselves that plagiarism is a moral harm. And I think that's deeply affected the way that we think about and do the enforcement of plagiarism in really pernicious ways. Because I think if we were to return to a world in which we conceptualize plagiarism as purely being about literary ownership of attribution rights, we might think very differently about what we want to punish and what we don't, or what we think we ought to require and what we don't, right? Because my point is, who do we ask about what, who owns something and who doesn't, right? If you ask authors, is this idea something you own? They have a very strong incentive to say, yes, that is an idea that I own. But what if I, the reader, making the decision whether or not to attribute a particular idea to a particular person comes to the conclusion that I am not going to attribute that idea because I don't think that person actually originated it. Or I think that person originated it, but in such a poor way that I don't want to give them credit for it. Or they originated it perhaps, but they did it so badly or so wrong. I don't want to direct readers to them because it would be harmful to readers to be told that you should be checking out this source when that source is bad. I'd rather give the, the credit for that to another source that I think produces it better and more effectively. I think that gets really critically down to that tension between pretending that that plagiarism norms are about preventing fraud and benefiting the reader, as opposed to plagiarism norms being about authors being able to enforce attributional ownership of things that they want to be able to control and that they want to internalize the positive externalities of the fame associated with being the original originator of those ideas and expressions. If we think about it the latter way, all of a sudden, I think we can reimagine a concept of plagiarism, right? That thinks of attribution as something voluntary, not mandatory, right? So well, hold on, hold on quick, quick, let me, let me, Brian, let me interrupt you real quick. Um, we're still at the first rationale. We're not yet to reader fraud or to my student hypo. On this yes. first rationale, and I'll, I'll let you answer, then let Crit answer, and then we'll come back to you on the second rationale. On the first, on this, but my, I'm confused by what you just said because if someone wrote a book tomorrow or an article mm -hmm. that said the Supreme Court's not a court because they don't take prior law, I'm sorry to be using this example. It's just the easiest one to use. Um, <laughs> Uh, the court doesn't take prior law minimally seriously. It never has. It's a multi-body institution has to compromise on the law, blah, 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 all the reasons I gave. And didn't credit, didn't credit me. And this actually happened to me once with a very famous, with a very famous person um, who, 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 who immediately apologized and, and corrected it. But yeah. um, I, I do feel bad about that. Like I would be hurt by that. I would be angry. I would be mad. What, what is wrong with me being mad about that? Yeah, and shouldn't there be, shouldn't there be some basis for me to, I don't know, yeah. get some redress. There, there's nothing wrong with being mad, but just because you're mad doesn't necessarily mean that you want to, it, that you want to vindicate a right that we socially ought to respect, right? So it's the second part of the question that matters to me. Under those circumstances, I would make two points, right? One is, what if the person who didn't provide a citation or didn't acknowledge yeah. his debt to your work did so for a reason? Right? What if there was an expressive reason huh. for them not wanting to refer to your work because they didn't think it was deserving of mention in your book or they thought it would be redundant? By the way, Brian, Brian, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I'm sorry, but, but, right? but like, I, I got to get this in and get your reaction yeah. to it. That's actually very close to real life because there are, as we sit here, two or three extremely prominent Ivy League professors. No, sadly, only two or three, but there are two or three. Now, I'm not talking about Larry Kramer or Mark Tushnet or people who came before me, but people who came after me. There are who who, who actually present my thesis as theirs. They do. Yeah. And I'm okay yeah. with, and, I, I, and I'll be honest, I'm okay with it actually 
because they get more cred than I get because of who they are and where they are. Yeah. And maybe it's better. They so I, I do want Chris's reaction to this. Sorry, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. so when someone at Harvard or Yale takes my thesis and puts it out there as theirs, it actually gets more social play than if they said it was Siegel's idea. And I actually am okay with that because I'd rather the idea get to play than Siegel get to play at this stage in my career. 20 years ago, no. But at this stage in my career, yes. What's So how does that play out? That seems to undercut your first rationale, maybe. Yeah, so I feel that this is all contextual. And what Brian was saying before, there's a lot that I agree with. Okay. So this question of standing on the shoulders is often overplayed. So um, in trademark, we have this um, this concept of genericide, right? So- What, what's, um, the, what's that word? Genericide. I love it's that word. Great word. <laughs> um, and the idea is great. So, so once upon a time, zipper was a trademark. It, there was a tooth closure wow. that was invented and named a zipper. And the zipper functioned as a trademark. That is the word zipper indicated that all tooth closures came from the same source. And over time, we all adopted zipper as a general descriptor of a tooth closure. Like Kleenex. A, like Kleenex, right? Maybe like Xerox. Yeah. Um, and that word ceased to function as a trademark and started just to be a generic descriptor. And at that point, it loses all um, its power under the trademark law. You can't claim a trademark in it because we you know, have adopted it into the language and that comes first. That's more important. I, I think something similar sometimes happens to ideas. So I'm not, I'm not saying that this happens to your sure, idea yet, sure. but I, maybe it will one day where you know your idea or some idea becomes just stock to our discussion. It's something that when we discuss the Supreme Court, one view, which is recognized, widely held, is that this court doesn't act at all like a court. It acts more like a legislature. It, it is both you know, unaccountable and incredibly powerful, right? Those, that set of ideas, which you had so much to do with kind of bringing to public consciousness, maybe at some point becomes stock. Maybe that idea undergoes a kind of genericide and that's another reason why, in context, we wouldn't want to chain the culture to Eric Siegel, right? right? We, we free the culture there because- are, There are a thousand is, reasons we don't want to do that, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but you, my, my point is, look, Brian and I have quite a bit of agreement here on the contextual nature of these decisions, whether you are standing on the shoulder of giants or not. So in my New York Magazine article, and in an earlier um, uh, review I wrote of one of Brian's pieces, I gave an example of someone who uses a student who uses a poem, a short poem from Anais Nin. And this poem is got a, it's beautiful. It's insightful on the one hand. On the other hand, a real plagiarism case involving someone, Jill Abramson, the former New York Times editor, who copies some just basic factual description from um, a, a news article and doesn't credit. And the, what Jill Abramson doing isn't standing on the shoulders of giants. I basically say she's perched on a very small footstool at most, <laughs> right? And so I would not actually invoke the shoulder standing justification there. I don't, I don't actually think that works. The, the truth about plagiarism rules as we now think of them is they are highly moralized, as Brian says, and we tend to be indiscriminate yes. in our condemnation of shoulder standing. Yes. And, you know, Brian, question shoulder standing as a rationale. I certainly question the scope of the rationale. Okay, got it. Very good. Yeah. So, so Brian, yeah. so Brian, one of the things you've written about that I found fascinating is yeah. let's say a student 
at Yale plagiarizes um, an article of Chris's, a, a, a very sophisticated IP article that Chris has written. But Chris actually likes the student, and Chris is happy to get his ideas out there in Yale Law Journal. Um, and Chris doesn't really want to, doesn't think it's wrong. Like, Chris is fine with it. Like, I don't care. Like, you would be. Chris is fine with it, hypothetically. That student is going to be punished by Yale regardless, right? And you have a problem with that. Yeah. Go yeah, ahead. yeah. So, well, I mean, I, I, I would say I have a performative problem with that insofar as for me what i really like about the phenomenon that you've described is that it treats ownership of ideas as a property right whether or not the person who ostensibly owns that property right, right. actually wants to force them right or not in the first place so what i've done on several occasions is sort of interventions around that first kind of offering or literally offering to anyone who wants to copy or use anything that i've generated uh to uh, to to authorize what I call plagiarism, right? That, that you're allowed to use those ideas and I object to anyone objecting to you using those without attribution. <laughs> Wait, that's, that's back up. Oh, um, sorry, Brian, went, that went quickly. You object to anyone else objecting to the use of your right. ideas. So, that's wait, right, that's so right. but wait, wait, that just floored me because it occurs to me, sorry, sorry, yeah. it occurs to me though, Brian, that the norms against plagiarism are broader yeah. than just protecting the author's ownership, not even going to defrauding the reader, which we'll get to, but not even that part of it, but the part of it that Yale has a set of guidelines for all of its students that are really irrelevant to the mm -hmm. property owner's right in the idea. Why is that so offensive to you? Um, well, for me, it's, it's, it's more that I want to encourage people to think about why we're doing what we're doing. Because again, as I said earlier, I think because of the deeply moralized nature of plagiarism rights, the way in which they depend for their legitimacy so profoundly on taking them as being a moral absolute, a little pinprick in that moral absoluteness all of a sudden makes them deflate in a lot of ways pretty quickly yes. for me and turn into something much more cynical about authors protecting, collectively protecting their interest in attributions. And, and I would give you an alternative example to the one you just gave, right? In that scenario, I would say the authorial community, the discursive community in question enforces the property right irrespective of the desires of the author who ostensibly owns that right, although generally they are fine with enforcement of those circumstances. I would call that almost something like a club good, right, where there's a collective interest in enforcing the rule. And so the other members of the club are going to beat up the, the defector, right, because they all want to ensure that everyone knows that you don't defect or you pay the consequences. Now, I'll give you an alternative example, which is ghostwriting. Right. And I think it's a great example because ghostwriting is literally plagiarism. However, it's not, it's but no, it's not. But wait, hold on, Chris, back up, back no, no, up. Eric, it's literally. No, plagiarism. it's not. Wait, wait, back it's up, back taking, up. It's wait. taking something written by someone else and putting your name on it. But, the difference is that authors like ghostwriting because it enables them to make more money. No, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. So this Yale law student takes Chris's work, repackages it, but basically reproduces it. Um, not, and, not, 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 not the, I, I, I'm, I'm setting up a distinction. No, I know, but hold, hold on. But in the ghostwriting, so, but, but that, that student is in fact concealing something. The ghost, the only thing concealed in the ghostwriting context, right, is the fact of, is, is, is the ghostwriter. But the author is not passing it off as his own, right? The author admits this book was ghostwritten, 
No. 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 Oh, okay. I assume there are. Oh. <laughs> Ghostwriting is comes in a bunch of different forms. Yeah. Some very prominent ghostwriters are actually credited as co-authors. Some ghostwriters, even very skilled ones, are not credited at all. Oh, I didn't um, know that. So I'm sorry. No, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So ghostwriting is a really interesting. Okay, Chris, uh, Brian, I apologize for interrupting you. Then my bad. Go ahead. Not at all. Go not ahead. at all. So, so, so my, my point here is that when we start to see that the way plagiarism and norms play out in practice curiously always seem to reflect the collective self-interest of the community that's creating and enforcing those norms. That makes me suspicious as to why we have those norms in the first place and what we're trying to do with them. Now, I would distinguish between the author's interest in claiming ownership and the putative reader's interest in, in not okay. being Okay, so hold, before, you, Brian, before you go on there, so that's, the, that's Chris's second rationale. Let's hold off now for one second. Chris, do you have any okay. – I'll, I'll let Brian, I'll come right back to you on that. Chris, I'm not good at this kind of thing, so I'm doing the best I can here, folks. Um, I usually have one person I'm talking to. Um, Chris, do you have a response to Brian's response to your first rationale? I, I mean, look, ghostwriting is a puzzle. Okay. I, I totally agree with that. We, okay. we can talk about it a little more. Okay. Um, and author's interest being, being the thing that's driving this, uh, Brian and I are totally in agreement on this. Okay. And how do you know this? Well, there are costs to – um, pervasive anti-plagiarism rules. So here's one cost. We're legal academics. We probably uh, live in a field that suffers this the most. We have incredibly demanding citation requirements, anti-plagiarism requirements. So LARVs, as you all know, will require you to provide a citation for basically everything you say. It's incredibly so annoying. Am, it's incredibly annoying. I am, yeah, but I am not slacking. Uh, I'm not slagging students. students right do the best they can. They grow up within this field. The norms of the field are communicated to them by their elders. They are in a position in their lives where they're trying to learn the rules and play by them. You know, only later in their lives will they question them <laughs> very deeply, right? So th this is not, none of what I'm about to say is intended to be mean to Chris, students. I do have to interrupt you for one second because what you just said, yeah. actually there was a person in 1981 in Nashville, Tennessee at the Vanderbilt Law Review who refused to run for the editorial board out of protest of the blue book to which the editorial, cause I said it was the stupidest thing I've ever seen. And I refuse to spend my time on this for one more second to which they made me research editor, which was simply ideas of student, you know, doing, giving students ideas for notes because they wanted me to do something else. And I was like, no, I will not do the blue book. You will not make me, it's not going to happen. So I'm sorry, just go ahead. Okay. Well, aside from that one Don Quixote yes. game, most, <laughs> most students are not like that. So, so what, what, it, what, what do we get in law reviews? We get these really, really exacting citation rules. And this is part of what makes law review articles 25,000 words yep. or more. It's part of what makes them so unreadable. You know, any really good writer, anyone who writes for a living will tell you that you know, if you're quoting all the time, right, if you are citing all the time, it makes things less accessible. That is a cost of these rules. And we tend to pay virtually no attention to these costs because the entire economy of anti-plagiarism rules is seen from the perspective of writers. It's not seen from the perspective of readers. That is fundamentally screwed up. Okay. That's not the way it should be. Okay. And you and Brian agree on that point, I know. Um, yeah, right. 100%. 100%. Okay, 100%. So, so, and so, and so the, the point I always want to make about readers is this one, right? We say that plagiarism norms are about preventing fraud and benefiting readers with a higher quality product. I find that incredibly uncom uncompelling, right? First off, the fraud rationale is totally circular. The only reason that consumers of works of authorship care about plagiarism is that they're told plagiarism is bad. So if you accuse a 
person who produced the work of being a plagiarist, the, the readers are disappointed by the work, not because they dislike the work, but because you, they've been told it's bad because it's tainted with plagiarism. It, 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 totally circular, right? The, 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 the additional point I would make is that if what we're concerned about is quality of the work for the reader, then the argument should be not you are obligated to cite that particular source or provide that particular reference because that person who you should have cited owns the right to claim authorship of whatever it is you put in the work. The argument then should be you should have put it in there because it would have been beneficial to your reader to have that reference. Well, if you have to make that second argument, I think it blows up the entire enterprise. Why, why right? Brian? I, you, you lost me there. I, I, why is that? I'm sorry. Because then you have to justify the requirement to include whatever that whatever that citation or or reference was on on instrumental uh on on kind of consequentialist grounds you have to say that this would actually have been been beneficial to the reader to have had at which point you open up the response no it wouldn't have been beneficial to the reader to have had and here are my reasons for not including it all of a sudden you don't have a plagiarism nor any norm anymore all you have is a quality rule that's interesting so you, brian if i if i understand you correctly I th and I, I may not be understanding you correctly. What you're saying is the fraud, Chris's second rationale, the fraud on the reader issue is not a real issue because, because going in, they're starting from a faulty premise. Plagiarism is bad. That's the assumption. Everybody agrees with it. Plagiarism is bad. If we deconstruct that premise, maybe plagiarism, and I think I gave an example of maybe it's not. Maybe when a very famous Harvard professor steals my idea or a Yale professor steals my idea, given their platform, it's going to get more currency and it would undercut the value of the idea if people knew they were getting it from me. Cause, um, so it has to be a thousand percent more contextual. Do I have that correct? Yeah. And I guess my deeper point would be that the essence for me of the perceived legitimacy of plagiarism norms and enforcement as an enterprise is people's internalization of the belief that it is a good, bad, right, wrong uh, dichotomy that's at stake. And in my opinion and observation, the moment you start to delegitimize the moral assumptions that come along yeah. with plagiarism yeah. norms, all of a sudden, they just look like one more venal effort by a particular group of insiders to insert, uh, to in, uh, create and enforce rules that benefit them at the expense of outsiders. A venal, I want to repeat that sentence, a venal effort by insiders to, okay. So, so, Okay, Chris, do you agree with all that? You have some 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 little well, minor. some of it, yeah. but I let me just yeah. say what I agree with and what I don't. So yeah. In terms of you know the moralization of this, what people think is moral often follows what people think is normal. So let me give you an example. So Patti Smith does my favorite cover song of all time. She covers Van Morrison's Gloria, and she presents it as her own. Right. Every time Gloria Patti Smith's version is on the radio, she doesn't. They don't say, "Well, this is originally Van Morrison." Right. There's no attribution requirement. Um, in fact, the copyright law allows her to do that because built into the copyright law is a rule that says uh, you can make a mechanical reproduction of somebody else's musical composition, meaning you can make a recording of somebody else's musical composition. You don't have to ask their permission. You just have to pay them a few cents per copy. Right. That that's been the rule for over a hundred years for complex historical reasons. Anyway, so she does that. 
She doesn't have to attribute anything. The song plays on the radio. People, when they think of Gloria, they think of that canonical version by Patti Smith. And for good reason, it's better than Van Morrison's version. And uh, everyone thinks that's great. No one says she's a plagiarist. The plagiarism is not like a thousand miles from that. Okay. So the law shapes how we think about plagiarism. It Chris, I'm it sorry. Uh, Chris, I'm, I'm confused. I'm a little confused. Yeah. But there have been lawsuits um, involving songs where someone says you stole my song and they want, uh, John, uh, right? Isn't um, George Harrison's song, My Sweet Lord. Wasn't that, again, this is not my area, guys, but wasn't yeah. that the subject of a huge, huge lawsuit and all that stuff? Right, but th that lawsuit is different. That is, you stole some little bit of my musical composition. So in other words- How can that be, how can that be worse than stealing the whole it. thing? Whereas if you steal the whole thing, right? That makes no like sense. What are you talking about? Wait a second, you've totally confused me. And we don't think of that as plagiarism, okay? Yeah. So this this is like the ghostwriter thing. There's, <laughs> it shows you that plagiarism norms are driven by economic interests. The economic interests that drive them are the economic interests of writers. And so I think Brian and I agree on this. Yes. I think where we might disagree is, uh, I think the economic interests of writers are weighty, but they can be balanced in in some of the ways that copyright tries to balance, plagiarism could try to balance better between the economic interests of writers and the economic interests of readers. And if we demoralize this and we think about it as a set of incentives, right, a, a way of like structuring markets in expression, we could, um, and the production of ideas, we could come up with more balanced rules about plagiarism, more context specific. That doesn't mean we would have like a you know, a different rule for every case. It means we would come up with rules of thumb that are more discerning, that separate out the, the core thing that we don't like versus other things that we think are irrelevant or minor misconduct at worst. And we would, we would have a more sophisticated, more fair, basically ultimately more productive conversation. And, and, and just so, so I'm- So I wanna, I, yeah, I wanna, I wanna, agree, I wanna agree with Chris in a very particular <laughs> Way. By the way, Brian, uh, you guys can't right? see this, but Brian just used air quotes to say agree with Chris. So right. go ahead. So that's true. It's true. This is a form of property, right? And we know how we think about property. It's an asset on which you can collect rents, right? So just like landlords own buildings and rent them out to, to, to people to live in and, and charge rent, right? So too do copyright owners own a property interest in their work of authorship and rent it out to people via licensing fees and collect rents. And authors own own a property interest in the uh, fame and uh, attribution associated with their work of authorship. And they, they rent it out in the form of citations. That's the coin of the salt scholarly realm. So I would observe that it's true, right? Uh, authors do have property interests that make them landlords, just like any other landlords. And we should afford that just as much moral weight as we afford the ability of landlords to collect rent. So, so wait, so that makes me think you, you agree that, 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 that someone should be able to sue if they take two chords of my song that are and don't attribute. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm confused. To, to, the, to the extent that we think there's a property interest at stake and we want to provide and enforce that property interest, we should enforce the property interest in the same spirit that we enforce the obligation of renters to pay rent to their landlord. Interesting. Okay. The third rationale, Chris, because I have two big, we're running out of time and I have two big issues that I, that I want to talk about. But lastly, so, so a third rationale for all this is we don't want to give students or even, I guess, even professors on a tenure track unfair advantage over other people. But I'm, I can 
to jump ahead, are you going to say to me, well, if we abolish all plagiarism rules, then it's a level playing field and it doesn't matter? Is that your answer? No, tell me. Part, par partially, I, I have an additional answer, yeah. which is that this is a pretty common rationale for given, given for the enforcement yeah. of of plagiarism norms. And I, and I actually feel that argument, yeah. the inequities argument in, in a lot of ways. However, I observe that in practice, what actually happens much more frequently is what I refer to as, what's often referred to as a Matthew effect, right? So to him who's given little, little be, will, will be received. To him who's given much, much will be received. The reality of, of how plagiarism norms work in practice is that the most prominent people in the field get the most citations and the least prominent people get the fewest. So in reality, plagiarism norms that theoretically, conceivably could result in greater uh, equity of citations in practice tend to actually do exactly the opposite and accumulate. Okay. Yeah. But Brian, that's a different problem though. I agree with that. I, you, you've convinced me of that. I think Chris has sympathy for that, I think, okay. but you didn't answer my question though. But what about the students who are competing against each other? And one of them writes a law review note completely plagiarized. And one of them takes three hours, and one of them spends 60 hours running an original note. Yeah. What, what do we do with that? I would give two responses to that. First yeah. off, that plagiarism, plagiarizing well is actually much harder. <laughs> it's than, a skill? Than, You're saying that's a skill? And, and the reality <laughs> is that, that, yeah, that the reality is plagiarize, plagiarize okay. work is often quite poor quality. Okay. I like law students as an example, because actually the law student who can plagiarize well and efficiently and produce a high quality work product in a... A more efficient and effective way is actually showing good lawyering skills. Yeah, so uh, okay. I argued with I argued with Megan Boyd that we should uh, be teaching our law students how to plagiarize more efficiently and effectively because in the practice of law, if you're not plagiarizing, you're committing malpractice. Um, but I would add an additional observation, which is is I actually think it's a mistake to use the term plagiarism in an academic context when talking about students, because to my mind, plagiarism, to the extent we want to recognize it as a economic phenomenon, we want to kind of develop and protect, I think it should be public facing. When it comes to students, the real objection isn't plagiarism, it's cheating. Yes. And if we if we if we want to punish them for cheating, we can do that. But then I think we need to think a little bit harder about what constitutes cheating, what's actually giving an unfair advantage. What do we want to punish and why do we want to punish it? Right. What do we want students to be accomplishing when they do this? And I think the most fundamental question, and the reason one of the reasons we wrote the paper about plagiarism is that to the extent that copying is a good pedagogical exercise, right? There's a possibility that we're enforcing rules that are actually reducing rather than increasing student learning. So I think we ought to be more open-minded about what achieves our ultimate goal in legal education and education more broadly, which is what what helps students learn most efficiently. That's all we should be caring about. Okay. Chris, you want to respond to that before I ask my big question? <laughs> Go ahead and ask your big question because okay. I'm, I'm yeah. really interested in your big question. Okay. So I didn't tell you guys I was going to ask this, but that's because I trust both of you to respond in the moment. Um, okay. AI. Like this is, this is, this is, um, Whatever issues we have with plagiarism today, I think two factors are contributing to this is going to be, and Chris and I did talk about this a little bit last night on the phone, this is going to become a disaster in the near future. So just, just so two things. One, AI makes it much easier to produce work that's not your own. So that, that's just obvious, I think. Um, so how AI is going to fit into all of this, I think is a real question. And then last night on Twitter, a very interesting thing happened. Two law professors who have substantial weight in their respective fields, which is not plagiarism, obviously, um, 
joked on Twitter that they were going to produce a list of law professors who have plagiarized. And, they, and, and for a while, the, the Twitter universe didn't know if they were serious or not. <laughs> and and um, I think all three of us agree that if you took any law professor who's been around more than 10 years, you're going to find all kinds of plagiarism by current standards, probably, uh, in that. Well, you admit to it, Brian, but for those of us who don't admit to it, they're going to find it anyway. Um, so, my bit, so my two big questions are the following. I start with Chris. How much, I know you want to talk about this, how much of a problem is this going to be in the future with political witch hunts based on plagiarism? I view the ending of the president of Harvard's tenure as a witch hunt. I do. I don't think she should have resigned from what I've seen. And I think they're out to get her for a reason separate from either her stance on Israel or her alleged plagiarism. I think both those things weren't the real reasons, but they use plagiarism as a cudgel. First question. Second question, is AI going to make this all much worse? Go ahead. Yeah. So first question, that's what the New York Magazine article is about. So plagiarism rules written the way they are, are just, they're perfect to demagogue and leverage against universities because you can point at them, they, they, they suck up as they and define as plagiarism all kinds of activities, some of which is serious, other is less serious. It's kind of citation misconduct yeah. that you could, you could probably treat as a misdemeanor. Um, <clears throat> it, it labels all these as plagiarism. It applies the kind of moral language to them that we all engage in when we talk about plagiarism. And it, it, let, it, it provides a great opportunity for people who want to um, degrade the university, to deprive it of the ability to govern itself, to, to use it against the university. So this is what I think you see happening with Claudine Gay. All the things she did, none of them were taking someone else's idea and presenting it as it her own. It's basically in a literature review, she fails to cite something or she fails to quote something adequately. These are all like infractions at worst. Um, this is, it's it's ridiculous to me that the president of Harvard University, if, if she was brought down by this, that this had like even, you know, anything to do with it. Um, you know, she's the president. So some people would say, well, she represents the university's mission. And so she's she's especially has, has to be above all reproach. But, you know, I really do think that virtually no one is above all reproach, right. given the rules that we have. Right. Um, with respect to AI, <clears throat> um, you know, I think there's a, a bit of a moral panic going on over AI right now. And the question is, you know, how is it going to change pedagogy? Um, it would be it would be surprising to me if we don't have a kind of set of plagiarism scandals that involve AI. And I hope at some point we'll learn that AI is making the production of words much, much easier, like calculators make doing trigonometry much, much easier. Uh, so, Chris, sorry, sorry. My, my, my daughter and I had a, she was yelling at my, uh, she was yelling last week about why she has to learn a certain thing in math because she'll never have to use it because she just has to put the, she has a, a special calculator she can use to do exactly what they were trying to right. teach her. And she was really mad about it. Right. Well, good writing in the future. I mean, this sounds awful, but try to stick with me. Yeah. Good writing in the future may come about when people tell an AI, hey, write me something specific about something, like give me a couple of paragraphs about this. And then you spiff it up, that you apply your style to it. Like Warhol applies his style to a picture of Marilyn Monroe, and that turns into a great work of art. Maybe the Supreme Court doesn't appreciate it, but it turns into a great work of art. <laughs> right. So, um, uh, you know, I, I think we are at the threshold potentially, you know, none of us can see the future perfectly, but I think we're at the threshold of reevaluating 
how artists make great art. You know, when the camera was invented, a lot of painters looked at this and said, sure. well, how the hell are we, you know, what does this mean? It's like, this is an art. This is people just opening a shutter and capturing reality. And, you know, looking at this from the perspective of 2024, that seems a crazy view, right? But it was a view. And maybe 50 years from now, our view about AI will be, it's just another writing tool. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so two observations. I, I agree with what Chris said about the Claudine Gay and other recent academic plagiarism scandals. Um, it seems to me that I hope at least one takeaway from this is that if we're not going to punish professors and university presidents meaningfully for engaging in this kind of activity, or if we want, if we're concerned about characterizing it as plagiarism, we should be doubly concerned about the fact that students are public punished for exactly that same thing all the time and i think that need that that needs to stop right punishing students for this kind of like unintentional non-cheating type plagiarism is just cruel and foolish and i i really think we need to to, to cut it out with that kind of behavior no one's being harmed by this and um it should no longer be the kind of thing that schools are pursuing and i think i hope that these scandals will embarrass people out of engaging in similar kinds of persecutions of students. I'm not hopeful, but but I I, I wish. Um, when it comes to AI, I'm actually really excited because I think what AI does is help puncture a lot of the pieties. Yeah, I agree that with that. I agree with where you're going on this. Yeah. About what it means to be creative, right? We have a vision of copyright and creativity being connected with one another. And I've always found that kind of risible. Right, because what copyright really protects, what copyright is really for, is for encouraging people to create um, product, commercial works that consumers like consuming, things that are as similar as possible to what came before, typically with small variations. To the extent consumers are paying a premium, what they're paying a premium for is usually the brand, the you know the performer or the author, whoever it is who brings a kind of cachet to the product uh, that is uh, desirable, that consumers enjoy being in the proximity of. But the works themselves typically are quite banal and generic. We say we value creativity, but I, I don't think that's what we actually value when it comes down to the dollars. And sense, and I think what AI does really nicely is show us just how banal most of what we produce is, because it can generate totally acceptable facsimiles in a purely algorithmic fashion by merely stick, sticking random word okay. fragments together. And we read it, and it comes across just like anything but, else that somebody. But, but hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, Brian. So, so I understand why artists in 1860 or 70 or 80 would be very concerned about the camera. I get that. And in fact, just my, we went to Paris for New Year's and um, somewhere in there, I forget where we were, we saw some, we didn't know if it was a painting or a photo. Like we really couldn't, it was so close that we couldn't, yeah. we couldn't actually tell. So here's my question about, so, but, but generally speaking, we do require artists to say, this is a photo or this is a painting. We don't want an artist palming off a photo and calling it a painting, right? Like we don't want, that would be deceiving. No? Yes? I mean, I think you guys, artists wait a second. Are, I'm telling, I want to tell the audience, these two guys were not concerned with that at all. <laughs> that, that fell totally flat <laughs> to both of them. So, right. <laughs> to be concerned with that, you, you've got to have a theory for why people would care about a painting versus a photo. And I think the theory would be that people think, well, a painting is the production of a lot of effort. It's harder. And a photo yeah. doesn't require a lot of yeah. effort. And that's actually the artistic value of something is only 
you know, very problematically tied to effort, right? Sometimes things that don't take a lot of effort are artistically very profound and things that you effort over are like schlock. Hey, John McEnroe, John McEnroe didn't practice tennis. John McEnroe did not practice tennis. He was just not really, not by, not by professional standards. He did not. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So this, you know, what the thing you've just said is, I mean, I get why people, that's their intuition, but it's really problematic. Okay. All right. So going back to AI. So Brian, here's my question to you. Uh-huh. Um, AI becomes, and then we'll call it a day. Um, uh, a- AI, a student uses AI to write a, to write a, a required paper for a class. It seems to me the, it may be, I, I buy your arguments that AI is going to become a tool. We have to use it better. And the student who can use AI better than the other student is showing a skill mm-hmm. that maybe should be rewarded in the world of lawyering and all that stuff. Okay. But shouldn't the student have to say this came from AI? I mean, I don't, it's just words stuck together. What difference does it make where it came from? Well, it's, it, I mean, it saves a lot of time. I mean, I mean it, sa- it saves it. The, the AI generates the words. The student decides whether or not to use them, right? They're just words stuck together. <laughs> I don't know. Stuck. I have such a resistance to this. And it's, it's, it's illogical. And a, Chris, help me out here. Am I just being stupid? And ignorant? Like, I, I, I don't think you're being stupid. I, th- I think you're raised in a framework where, you know, where the words come from matters. And yeah. I think the, the thing about AI that I find the most interesting is not what AI does, but what it says about us. So as Brian said, AI is producing increasingly plausible artifacts that look like they were created by humans. And if that's the case, all right, then what is it that's special about our creativity? Oh, that's fascinating. Right? The, the creativity that comes from AI comes from a process that's obviously different from what goes on in our heads. But frankly, we don't even understand what goes in our heads, right? So is there something special about what goes on our heads that makes artifacts of human creativity morally relevant? That's a question that is raised, not answered, but raised by AI. That's the interesting question. I don't think we can just assume anymore that where words come from is we wow. to their value. Yeah, okay. Yeah. See, so the way I, the way I like to frame it is to say that the beautiful thing about AI is that it frees us from the burden of producing banalities and gives us the opportunity to produce creative works instead. The hard question is, do we actually want to produce creative works? And the even harder question is, do consumers want to buy creative right, works? Right. So, okay. Two last things. Um, first, I hope, I think there's going to be enormous changes and agony and terror over the next year or so on this issue. I hope you both come back a year from now and we can, if I'm still doing this podcast, which I may not be, but if I am, I hope you come back and do this because I think there's going to be a lot more to talk about. An incoherent idea hit me as you guys were talking just now. I want to express it, have you guys react to it, and then we're done. It occurs to me that what both of you are doing, um, I, and frankly, Brian's doing a little more dramatically, I think. I think Chris would agree with that. But, I, but you're both doing the same thing. You're taking commonly held assumptions and deconstructing them and asking, why do we hold these commonly held assumptions? Should we? And sometimes the answer to that question is yes. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, in other contexts, the answer is yes. But you're saying maybe we've got to really reexamine what everybody just assumes to be true and then decide what kind of regime we want to police if there's something worth policing. Okay, you both, you both, have been, you both are brilliant scholars who've been doing this on this issue now for a while. The, what hit me when you guys were talking was you, you're both contributing such a unique intellectual perspective to this. It would bother me a lot if someone stole that and didn't attribute it to you. Like that would bother, like if I, so if I come across an essay next week 
that basically is somewhere between you guys. Like it's not quite Brian all the way, and it's a little more than Chris, but but it's somewhere in between. But it's clearly reliant on both of your previous works to write something that is not original, that is not interesting, yeah. but because of their platform, they get to disseminate it and get the credit for it. That bothers me. Is there yeah, no, Eric, so, let me yeah. just say two things. One, yeah. you will come across that. <laughs> okay. okay. That's never, okay. okay? Uh, whether, whether people copied from us or not, or just came up with those ideas, yeah. that's fine. And I really wish we wouldn't be so precious about this for, for the following reason. There's tons, there's like 9 billion people on the planet. I don't know. I don't yeah. know the number, but there's a lot. Yeah. Yes. And a lot of them are very, very smart. This <laughs> is one thing I, I think I learned growing up, which is like, intelligence is widely distributed. People take some time to think about something. They come up with ideas. You know, uh, some people are good at expressing them. Some people are less good at expressing them. But human creativity is all over the place. We shouldn't be so precious about it. It's kind of like running water. And if we want more human creativity, the, probably the best thing we could do for people is make their lives more secure, like feed them better wow. and give them better health care. And we'd get more human creativity because that, that's what we do. You know, and we're so creative that we've now designed a statistical inference machine that can basically reproduce what we do using something very different, right? And we we were we created that too, right? So we, we've we've created the kind of <laughs> device that undermines the moral relevance of of the thing that we do, which is kind of an amazing creative act. I'm good with that. I, okay. I'm not uh, okay a, much of a landlord. Okay. As, as, okay, Brian. Yeah, see, I, 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 I would observe that I see plagiarism as a form of love, and a kind <laughs> of really profound form of love because it means that you loved something so much that you wanted it to be truly your own and have your own. <laughs> and so, I actually think it ought to be incredibly flattering to think that somebody else would love what you would so, do in, in in such a profound way. And I'd like to observe as well that my proposed sort of replacement for the way we think about plagiarism now is that rather than think about uh, citing out of uh, uh, attributing out of obligation, we should attribute out of love as well, right? That the act of recognizing the value of somebody else's work should be seen as a giving act rather than obligatory act. So when I when I title this when I, when this comes out on Friday or next Monday or whenever it comes out, I kind of want to title it is plagiarism just another form of love. And if I title it that and don't give you credit and people don't make it through all the, all the way through this, this podcast, um, am I not ponding off an idea of my own? That's a rhetorical question. Okay. You guys, thank you so much. This has been, in, I am going to title it, It's Plagiarism Love. Um, thank you guys so much. This has been so much fun. Yes. And I do, I'm sincere. If I'm still doing this in a year, please come back and we'll go recent developments in the plagiarism world. How, how's that? Oh, one last thing. Sorry. When AI starts producing its own ideas, then we really have a problem, I think. And we'll, because I mean, when AI can literally reproduce itself without human, without human, because I'm a science fiction fan. That's another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> thank, thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thanks. You. Thanks.